40 here so we are going out live across rumble we're going out live across odyssey we're going out live across youtube right the, the whole world is here i just just got a very painful email which uh, forced me to look at myself in a very right, a painful way and to think jesus you know am i really like this i i, I sure hope I'm, I'm not the person described in this email and it kind of reminded me of this lecture I was just listening to on ADHD and dopamine, like the role of dopamine in attention deficit disorder along with addiction so wow, this email is too painful to read right now, a little distance alright, Andrew Huberman he is a professor at Stanford alright out there in the scientific literature and in discussion about ADHD, we will hear things like attention and focus and concentration and impulse control. For sake of today's discussion, attention, focus, and concentration are essentially the same thing. Okay? We could split hairs, and the scientific literature does split hairs about these. But if we want to understand the biology and we want to have a straightforward conversation about ADHD, if I say attention or focus, I'm basically referring to the same thing, unless I specify otherwise. Okay? So people with ADHD have trouble holding their attention. What is attention? Well, attention is perception. It's how we are perceiving. Okay, this is really painful because I do have a great deal of trouble holding my attention if the subject isn't about me, if it's not something that I'm really interested in. I get bored so easily. I'm just kind of scanning for those few things that I'm really interested in, such as me. Oh, and then if if the subject isn't like compelling me, I just... Man, he's just describing me here, guys. I, I think I think I've got I think I've got another problem here. I think I've got another mental illness. I think we have to add attention deficit disorder, hyperactivity, ADHD, whatever that is. I think I think that's me. Thing the sensory world. So just a little bit of neurobiology 101. We are sensing things all the time. There's no. information coming into our nervous system all the time. For instance, right now, you're hearing sound waves. You are seeing things. You are sensing things against your skin, but you are only paying attention to some of those. And the ones that you're paying attention to are your perceptions. So if you hear my voice, you are perceiving my voice. You are not paying attention to your other senses at the moment. Okay? You might even be outside in a breeze. And until I said that, you might not be perceiving that breeze, but your body was sensing it all along. So attention and focus are more or less the same thing. But impulse control is something separate because impulse control requires pushing out or putting the blinders on to sensory events in our environment. It means lack of perception. Impulse control is about limiting our perception. People with ADHD have poor attention and they have high levels of impulsivity. They are easily distractible. But the way that shows up is very surprising. You might think that people with ADHD. Yeah, this is me. I'm very distractible. That's the subject's me. 
gosh, or, or you know, there's few things that I'm hyper interested in. Just simply can't attend to anything. They really can't focus, even if they really want to. But that's no, that's not true. Obviously, there are some things that I could really focus on. Not just me, like certain ideas, certain compelling personalities. Simply not the case. People with ADHD, yes, they are distractible. Yes, they are impulsive. Yes, they are easily annoyed by things happening in the room. They sometimes have a high level of emotionality as well. Not always, but often. However, people with ADHD can have a hyper-focus, an incredible ability to focus. Yeah, this is me. I'm very easily annoyed, have a hard time keeping my focus, but there are a few limited things that I can get hyper-focused on. Like I had bosses who said that, you know, I tend to get focused on one thing, lose the, the bigger picture. On things that they really enjoy or in, are intrigued by. Now, this is a very important point because typically we think of somebody with ADHD as being really wild and hyperactive or having no ability whatsoever to sit still and attend. And while that phenotype, as we call it, that contour of behavior. Okay, I can't sit still. I can't attend, right? I can do it, guys. I'm 56 years age. I'm sitting still right now. I am attending. And cognition can exist. Many people, if not all people with ADHD, if you give them something they really love, like if the child loves video games or if a child loves to draw or if an adult loves a particular type of movie or a person very much, they will obtain laser focus without any effort. So that tells us that people with ADHD have the capacity to attend, but they can't engage that attention for things that they don't really, really want to do. And as we all know, much so I've spoken to sex addiction therapists, right? Counselors whose main focus is helping people with, with sex addiction and every single one of them had ADHD according to her, or according to the other other addiction therapists I, I've spoken to. So it seems like ADHD is, it seems to be disproportionately high among addicts of all kinds. And I, I don't think I've ever heard of an emotional addiction to which I'm not vulnerable. All right. I tend to be grandiose. I tend to be self-centered. I tend to be pleasure-seeking. I tend to be attention-seeking. I tend to be excitement seeking. I tend to engage in a lot of maladaptive daydreaming. I've, I guess I'm, I have some codependent tendencies, right? If there's an emotional addiction out there, like I've struggled with gambling. I've, I've watched too much TV. I've struggled with, with pornography. I've struggled with romantic relationships to the extent I, I can't maintain a romantic relationship so far for, for longer than a year. I've struggled with debt. For about eight years, I carried, oh no, for about six years, I carried over $50,000 in credit card debt between 2012 and 2017. So I've never found a 12-step program dealing with emotional addiction that does not speak to me. Much of life, whether or not you're a child or an adult, involves doing a lot of things that we don't want to do. Much of our schooling involves doing things that we would prefer not to do and sort of forcing ourselves to do it, to attend, even though we are not super interested in what we are attending to. There are a couple of other things that people with ADHD display quite often. One is challenging. So I've always had the hardest time attending to anything that I'm not hyper interested in. I'm like either all in or I couldn't give a stuff, right? I'm either like absolutely captivated by someone I'm talking to I'm just completely cavalier, just completely, you know, disregarding uh, other people. Like I tend to have, you know, a small number of particularly intense friendships. This guy's speaking about me here. Which is with time perception. 
Now, time perception is a fascinating aspect of how our brain works. And later we're going to talk about time perception and how you can actually get better at time perception. It's very likely that right now you are doing things that get in the way of optimal time perception. And I will tell you how to adjust your ability to measure time with your brain. People with ADHD often run late. They often procrastinate. But what's interesting and surprising is that if they are given a deadline, they actually can perceive time very well. And they often can focus very well if the consequences of not completing a task or not attending are severe enough. It's a little bit. Yeah, I can really pull it together when I'm given a deadline or I see the very negative consequences heading my way if I don't pull it together. This is me. Like the way that people with ADHD can really focus if they like something. Well, if they're scared enough about the consequences of not attending, oftentimes, not always, but oftentimes they can attend. If they're not really concerned about a deadline or a consequence, well, then they tend to lose track of time and they tend to underestimate how long things will take. Now, many people do that, not just people with ADHD, but people with ADHD have challenges understanding how to line up the activities of their day in order to meet particular deadlines, even if it's just a simple thing like finishing one set of tasks before lunch. Oftentimes, they will remember that lunch starts at noon. So this is how I really benefited from time tracking, all right? Keeping, keeping track of you know, my time, uh, keeping track of my money, how much I was spending, how much I was earning, that kind of precision has really helped me noon, but somehow they aren't able to fill the intervening time in a way that's productive and they can obsess about the upcoming deadline. For instance, we will talk about how to remedy this. In addition, their spatial organization skills are often subpar, not always, but often you will find that somebody with ADHD uses what's called the pile system in order to organize things. They will take many belongings and this could be in the kitchen or in their bedroom or in their office or in any space. And they will start piling things up according to a categorization system that makes sense to them and only them. It doesn't really have any logical framework. Many people use the pile system, and if you use the pile system, that doesn't mean that you have ADHD. In fact, if you're unpacking a house or you've moved recently or you've received a lot of presents recently, the pile system makes perfect sense to organize your space. But people with ADHD tend to organize things according to the pile system all the time, and that pile system doesn't work for them. Okay, so that's the key distinction, that they use a filing system, and it's not really files. They're piling things up in a way that makes sense to them, but then it doesn't work for them in terms of what task they actually need to perform. They can't find things, or if anyone moves one thing, then it's very disruptive to their overall plan because their overall plan doesn't really work in the first place. So that's a common phenotype, as we call it. A phenotype, by the way, is just an expression of a particular set of underlying genetic or psychological components. Okay. So we see the phenotype. So a phenotype could be brown hair and uh, green eyes. Like for me, a phenotype could also be that somebody uses the piling system. Okay. The other thing that people with ADHD have real trouble with is so-called working memory. Now you might think that people with ADHD would have really poor memories, but in fact, that's not the case. People with ADHD often can have a terrific memory for past events. They can remember upcoming events quite well. Their memory is clearly working. However, one aspect of memory in particular that we call working memory is often disrupted. Working memory is the ability to keep specific information online, to recycle it in your brain over and over again so that you can use it in the immediate or short term. A good example. Of yeah, this is me. Like I'll be given one thing that I need to focus on, one thing I need to keep track of, and I'll start daydreaming and lose track of it. This would be, you meet somebody, they tell you their name, they give you their phone number verbally, and you have to walk back to your phone and enter it into your phone. People without ADHD might have to put some effort into it. It might feel like a bit of a struggle, but typically they would. I remember at singles events, I, I think I was asking a woman for, for a name again and a phone number. I had forgotten it the first time, but she said, we remember the names and the phone numbers that we want to remember. Oh, just a, a stab in the heart there. We'll be able to recite that phone number in their mind over and over and then put it into their phone. People with ADHD tend to lose the ability or lack the ability to remember things that they just need to keep online for anywhere from 10 seconds to a minute or two. Okay. So a string of numbers like six, four, three, seven, eight, one for most people would be pretty easy. Six, four, three, seven, eight, one, six, four, three, seven, eight, one. You could probably remember that a minute from now without writing it down. But if you add one more number to that six, four, three, seven, eight, one, three, it gets tougher. 
Okay, so there's a reason why phone numbers typically have seven digits in them. Of course, there's an area code. So throughout my life, I've been berated accurately, rightly, profoundly so for my lack of attention to detail. And this professor at Stanford, he is just nailing it as I experience it, right? No, no excuse for the negative repercussions on other people, right? To, for me to have any recovery from this or other defective character traits, I have to clean up my side of the street and make amends to people I've hurt. But he's kind of describing how I experience things here. But remembering information that strings out longer than seven numbers or a sentence or two, that's challenging for most people. People with ADHD have severe challenges, even with much smaller batches of information over even much smaller batches of time. Deficits in working memory are also something that we see in people who have frontotemporal dementia, so damage to the frontal lobes, or age-related cognitive decline. And so it will come as no surprise that later when we discuss treatments, supplements, and other tools for ADHD, that many of those treatments, supplements, and tools for ADHD are similar to the ones that work for age-related cognitive decline. Okay, so we've more or less established the kind of menu of items that people with ADHD tend to have. Some have all of them, some have just a subset of them. Their severity can range from very intense to mild, but in general, it's Challenges with attention and focus, challenges with impulse control, they get annoyed easily, they have kind of an impulsivity, they can't stay on task, time perception can be off, they use the piling system or a system that doesn't work well for them in order to organize their things in physical space, and they have a hard time with anything that's mundane that they're not really interested in. But again, I just want to highlight that people with ADHD are able to obtain heightened levels of focus, even hyper-focus. For yeah, that, that's me. I have a hard time with the mundane, right? I have a hard day time with the tasks of ordinary life. I have a hard time cutting wood, carrying water, being a responsible adult, just, you know, accomplishing, you know, basic life tasks. I have, I have a hard time with the mundane. Like everything has to be exciting for me to, to pay any attention. If it's not exciting and riveting, yay, then it just, I can't, I can't keep it in my mind. The things that are exciting to them and that they really want to engage in. So now you have the contour of what ADHD is. And if you're somebody who doesn't have ADHD, you should also be asking yourself which aspects of ADHD are similar to things I've experienced before. Because what we know about the healthy brain is that there's also a range of abilities to focus. Some people focus very well on any task. You give them a task, they can just laser in on that task. Other people, they have to fight an internal battle. They have to convince themselves that it's important or interesting. They have to kind of incentivize themselves internally. Other people, doesn't matter. They could be bored to tears with the information, but they can do it just because they are, quote unquote, very disciplined people. Okay, so I've got a very painful email just uh, you know, just about an hour ago. I had to go off, go for a jog, go for a swim, do some push-ups, go for a walk, and then you know come back and you know kind of kind of deal with it and confront it and face it. It's like, oh my god, is this really how I am? It says, uh, like any red-blooded heterosexual man, Luke Ford will talk, write, use, sexualize women, but he does not love nor respect them. Is that, is that right? I mean, I know I've had, I have had some problems in this area. I'd like to think I'm making some progress as I'm growing older and wiser. Does Luke Ford like women? I think not. Look, I have had problems in this area. Uh, Perhaps due to early childhood, where I, you know, I was beaten a lot by some of the women in my, in my early childhood, right? And yeah, I, I developed from these adverse early experiences, you know, something of a rage against women. So yeah, 
I've got a problem in this area, so twelve stepping in this area. Obviously, I can't sustain relationships. Uh, I like to think I've made some progress on this, but yeah, as a kid, I was regularly bounced off the walls by women. Yeah, it wasn't men who beat me down; it was women who bounced me off the walls, smacked me about. Yeah, I was, you know, I was brutalized as as a, a kid. And just, you know, way too weak to fight back, didn't, didn't know what to do. I hung on, I survived. But yeah, there's, there's an element uh, of me that uh, developed from that uh, uh, irrational hatred of women. Case in point, in Luke Spire, who writes so many times, the youngest son of Seventh-day Adventist evangelist, Dr. Desmond Ford. This is another immaculate conception. No, my, my mother Gwen, she... He died a horrible, painful death of bone cancer over the course of about three and a half years. Uh, she finally succumbed uh, just before I turned four. And Panam Sands, where I'm at right now in Queensland, Australia, in Whoop Whoop, Outback Australia, near the beginning of the Barrier Reef, uh, my grandfather, my mother's father, used to own 80% of this land, this, you know, habitable land uh, until he started, I think, subdividing settling lots in the 1960s. Meeting Luke in person, it made me feel uncomfortable. He does not know my identity, so there was no previous impression. He described me later as some kind of blonde. Uh, a new unfamiliar feeling came over me. He does not like me. But why? I didn't do anything to him. He doesn't even know how much I helped him for nothing. Felt judged, dismissed, and devalued. Whew. So it sounds like I've got some uh, some amends to, to be made because the person who's writing this to me has been a good friend to me. I don't recall meeting her, but she has been a good friend to me for two decades. So I don't want to make people feel judged, dismissed, and devalued. Hey, Luke, you just earned a rabbinical degree without a rabbinical certificate, Smika. How, you may ask, by treating me just like the rabbis did? I grew up all my life in an orthodox home, school, youth group, synagogue, job, society, being my proper best, worrying about what people will say. Is my reputation in check? Am I you know, sending shalach manos on Purim? That's a food gift that we give on Purim. My, my Sabbath table, my homemade halas, meaning breads, my clothing, my outfits, my shoes, my kids. And in less than a minute, a former goy who is new to the community with a horrible reputation treats me just like every rabbi I worked with in Israel, New York, and Los Angeles. No, my three advanced degrees won't grant me entry to the boys' club, nor even if I was size zero plus plastic boobs. Hard to do with poor kids and Shabbos awaiting me around the corner each week. Do I really treat women like this? I hope not. But I am smart. I love smart people. Stop handling Handling, that means bargaining, as if you're in a street market. Smart never give you points. Maybe you get further when you play it. Humble, worthless, dumb it down, smile. Point out the nearest male who happens to be there. That's safer. But enough about Lee. Let's get to the topic of the day, and it's you. You treat women in the triple X industry as whores, but not only them. And anyway, why did you pick that muddy pond to splash in? Obviously, yeah, it reflects my own sickness. Why aren't you married with kids like your father or any Jewish, Orthodox Jewish man? Yes, you talk the talk. You contain lots of fancy theories ending 
the various isms and you acquired the right lingo, you hide well behind the bad boy image for years thinking you were safe. Surprise, today is you are triple X is your triple X day. You are being unmasked bare to the balls. Luke, you really don't like women. How do I know? Citing the obscenity case files of Jacobellus versus Ohio. I know it when I see it. Ouch. Am I really like this? Am I making any improvement? That's that's painful to read from someone who's been a very good friend to me. I tend to admire those people, but as you'll see a little bit later, it's not clear that that's the best way to run your attentional system. There might be something to this business of having heightened levels of attention for the things that you are most interested or excited by. So let's drill into this issue of why people with ADHD actually can focus very intensely on... So what I fear is right here, yeah, I can focus on anything I'm intensely interested in, but is the one thing that I'm most intensely interested in in the whole entire universe? God forbid. It's not me, is it? Am I am I the one thing that I'm uh, most, most interested in in the entire universe? God forbid. Works and fails and how to treat it by looking at some of the current and previous treatments for ADHD, as well as some of the recreational drugs that people with ADHD tend to pursue and like. Now, I'm certainly not a proponent of people with ADHD taking drugs recreationally. That's not what this is about. But if you look at their drug-seeking behavior and you couple that drug... So, luckily, I've not indulged in drugs. I've not indulged in alcohol. So... I've tried to regulate myself through excessive junk food, through excessive TV watching, through excessive porn use, through att excessive attention seeking, through excessive sports addiction, through excessive excitement chasing. I mean, for, for most of my life, I kind of go into almost every interpersonal situation, think, how can I wring the most attention for me out of this situation? seeking behavior to their desire to remedy their attention deficit, you start getting some really interesting insight into how dopamine is regulating these circuits in normal circumstances and in people with ADHD. So what exactly is going on with the dopamine system in people with ADHD? And what's going on with the dopamine system in people that have terrific levels of attention for any task? Well, in the year 2015, an important paper came out. The first author is Spencer, and it came out in a journal called Biological Psychiatry, and it formalized the so-called low dopamine hypothesis of ADHD. The idea that dopamine was somehow involved or not at the appropriate levels in people with ADHD, have been around for a pretty long time. But a formal proposition of the low dopamine hypothesis led to some really important experiments and understanding of what goes wrong in ADHD. It turns out that if dopamine levels are too low in particular circuits in the brain, that it leads to unnecessary firing of neurons in the brain that are unrelated to the task that one is trying to do and that is unrelated to the information that one is trying to focus on. So if you think back before, you've got this default mode network and a task-related network. Yeah. That, that rings true to me. If I'm feeling empty, if I'm not feeling engaged with you know, whatever task is before me, I tend to daydream about something more pleasurable, which is frequently you know, how awesome I am. And then I really suck at the task in front of me. And I let people down. And I'm careless and I'm curt and I, I'm rude and I'm self-absorbed. And I don't meet my adult responsibilities. God, this sounds just like me work and they need to be in this kind of concert of anti-correlation and in ADHD, they're firing together. Well, the problem seems to be that when dopamine is low, certain neurons are firing when they shouldn't be. This is like a band, right? We'll go back to our band. That's a guitar, a bass, and, a, and the person playing the drums. And it's as if one of those or several of those instruments are playing notes when they shouldn't be playing, right? The pauses in music are just as important as the actual playing of notes. So this is how I would describe it. Like when I'm feeling just unbearably empty inside, 
and I'm just feeling bored and I'm just feeling oppressed by life and everything's just too mundane, then I have to you know, act out. So hopefully that's old Luke more. But uh, yeah, if I'm not in peak spiritual condition, you know, feeling connected to God, feeling useful to other people, feeling connected to community, then I get back to this kind of emptiness that uh, I guess religious people would say that there's a God-sized hole in my soul. So I've never been a kleptomaniac, but I know kleptomaniacs. And when they feel anxious, when they you know, worry about their financial safety and taking care of the, uh, the people that are close to them, right, then you know, they become very susceptible to you know, reaching out and taking things that aren't theirs. And I become very susceptible to tension-seeking, excitement-seeking, pleasure-seeking, thrill-seeking, which are all symptoms that I need to you know, go back, recalibrate, pray, meditate, you know, go to a meeting, talk to a sponsor, uh, you know, journal, talk to a therapist. When dopamine is too low, neurons fire more than they should in these networks that govern attention. This is the so-called low dopamine hypothesis. And if you start looking anecdotally at what people with ADHD have done for decades, not just recently since the low dopamine hypothesis has been proposed, but what they were doing in the 1950s and in the 1940s and the 1960s, what you find is that they tend to use recreational drugs or they tend to indulge in non-drug stimulants. So things like drinking six cups of coffee or quadruple espressos, or when it was more prominent, smoking a half a pack of cigarettes and drinking four cups of coffee a day. Or if the person had access to it, using cocaine as a recreational drug or amphetamine as a recreational drug. All of those substances that I just described, in particular cocaine and amphetamine, but also coffee and cigarettes, increase levels of multiple neurotransmitters. But what I would do is just chase excitement, chase the thrills and the spills and you know, chase attention and just grab your attention. That's what I try to do when I was in this very uncomfortable state. Like, yeah, through through the twelve step process, I've you know come to accept the idea that I was doing the best I could with the tools I had at the time to meet my needs. Now I've got better tools, and I don't have to behave in such a self destructive and socially destructive and hurtful hurtful way. But all have the quality of increasing levels of dopamine in the brain, and in particular in the regions of the brain that regulate attention and these task-related and default mode networks. Okay? Now, young children, fortunately, don't have access to those kinds of stimulants most of the time. And those stimulants all have high potential for abuse in adults. So we will talk about the potential for abuse in a few minutes. But if you look at children, even very young children with ADHD, they show things like preference for sugary foods, which also act as dopamine-inducing stimulants. Now, of course, once they get access to soda pop and coffee and tea, they start to indulge in those more than other people. For a long time, it was thought that children with ADHD consumed too many sugary foods or drank too much soda, or adults with ADHD would take recreational drugs like methamphetamine or cocaine, or would drink coffee to excess or smoke cigarettes to excess because they had poor levels of attention and because they couldn't make good decisions. They were too impulsive and so forth. And while that certainly could be the case, knowing what we now know about dopamine and the fact that having enough dopamine is required in order to coordinate these neural circuits that allow for focus and quality decision-making, an equally valid idea is that these children and these adults are actually trying to self-medicate by pursuing these compounds, right? Things like cocaine lead to huge increases in dopamine. Well, find literature out there and many claims about so-called ginkgo bilboa, which has been shown yeah. to have minor effects in improving the symptoms of ADHD, not nearly as effective as Ritalin and Adderall. Ginkgo bilboa is not appropriate for many people. I am one such person. I don't have ADHD, but when I've taken ginkgo, even at very low doses, I get absolutely splitting headaches. Some people do not experience those headaches, but it's known to have very potent vasoconstrictive and vasodilating properties. 
that vary depending on when you took the compound. So for those of you that are exploring Ginkgo Balboa, and you will see a lot of claims about Ginkgo Balboa for attention and ADHD, definitely take the uh, vasodilation, vasoconstriction, headache issue into consideration. So I'd like to talk about the drug Modafinil and the closely related drug Armodafinil. That's A-R, Modafinil, because Modafinil and Armodafinil... So I've been using Modafinil almost daily for approximately eight, eight, eight years now, I think are gaining popularity out there both for treatment of ADHD and narcolepsy, but also for communities of people that are trying to stay awake long periods of time. So it's actively used in the military by first responders. It's uh, gaining popularity on college campuses and people are using it more and more as an alternative to Adderall and Ritalin and excessive amounts of coffee. It does increase focus and to a dramatic extent. Modafinil typically was very expensive. Uh, you know, I don't know if it's still this expensive, but uh, when one has a prescription for it, it could still cost as much as eight or $900 or even $1,000 a month. Our modafinil is a far less expensive version that's chemically slightly different than modafinil. Regardless of price, people are taking modafinil and armodafinil. I want to emphasize that unlike Ritalin and Adderall, modafinil and armodafinil are weak dopamine reuptake inhibitors, and that's how they lead to increases in dopamine. So whereas Ritalin and Adderall, amphetamine and cocaine lead to big increases in dopamine, also through reuptake mechanisms and so forth, modafinil is, is a weaker dopamine reuptake stimulator. And so what that means is that it leaves more dopamine around to be active at the synapse, the, the gaps between neurons. However, it also activates other systems. It acts on the orexin system, which is actually a peptide that we talked about in the episode on hunger because it regulates hunger and appetite and it regulates sleepiness and feelings of sleepiness. In fact, the, excuse me, orexin, also called hypocretin system, the orexin hypocretin system is what's disrupted in narcolepsy. That was the important discovery of my colleagues, Emmanuel Mignon and Seiji Nishino at Stanford some years ago. They identified the biological basis of narcolepsy and it's a disruption in this orexin hypocretin system. And modafinil is one of the primary treatments for narcolepsy. It also has these other effects on the dopamine system and on the norepinephrine system. Even though it doesn't lead to quite as intense levels of dopamine and arousal and focus, it does have the property of raising levels of attention and focus, and that's why people are using it. So it's a somewhat milder form of Adderall. Armodafinil, for some people, works as well as modafinil, and as I mentioned before, it's much lower cost. For other people, it doesn't. I have an experience, meaning I do have an experience that I'll share with you with Armodafinil. A few years ago, I was suffering from jet lag really terribly, and I was traveling overseas. I went to a meeting to give a talk. I took half of the prescribed dose of Armodafinil. It was just prescribed to me. I took that half dose and I gave my lecture and then I stayed around to answer questions. And then four hours later, a friend of mine came up to me and said, you know, you've been talking for four and a half hours and uh, there are only a few people still here. Luckily, there were still a few people. It'd be a lot weirder if the room was completely empty and it wasn't being recorded. So I have firsthand knowledge of the sorts of cognitive effects that it can create. I personally would not want to be in that state for sake of studying or learning or for doing this podcast, for instance. And I can honestly say that today, all I've ingested is some coffee and some yerba mate tea and some water. I'm not on any of the compounds that I've described during the course of today's episode. You might ask why I took half the recommended dose of armodafinil. And the reason is that I'm somebody who's fairly hypersensitive to medication of any kind. What you find if you look in the literature is that about 5% of people are hyper, hypersensitive to medication. They require far lower doses of any medication than other people in order to experience the same effects. I'm somebody that... Yeah, I think that's uh, pretty... Pretty accurate for me. Generally, lower doses of medication tend to have more dramatic effects on me than normal. I also found that uh, taking modafinil, it keeps you so intellectually engaged that you tend to eat less. So I dropped about 10 pounds once I started taking modafinil. What were the other comments? It also, I find it gives you confidence and it kind of mutes some of the, the more negative emotions. And it gives you kind of a low level of euphoria. Now, it's true it's expensive. So I had a friend, he first got a prescription for it. And when he went to buy it at the pharmacist, he saw it was like $18 a pill. So he got four of them. And then, God forbid, he went online 
ended up buying the product from India. And so he had like four of the fair dinkum, you know, over the counter, you know, the pharmacy in, in America, you know, the real stuff. So he was able to compare the effects of the real stuff with what he bought from India and it was essentially indistinguishable. So instead of paying $18 a pill, he, he paid $1.50 a pill, God forbid, to, God forbid, to illegally buy them from India. I mean, God forbid that people should break the law and buy, you know, pharmaceutical products overseas at 5% of the the price and rob, you know, a hard-working pharmaceutical companies. Like, well, no one quite cry for Big Pharma. Like, think about how Big Pharma is being, you know, ripped off, suffering, you know, enormous revenue shortfalls because Americans are being parsimonious and buying a lot of their prescriptive medications illegally overseas. And then, God forbid, sometimes you might buy you know, some pharmaceuticals overseas and then customs seizes them. But if that happens, then, God forbid, your pharmaceutical supplier overseas will always, you know, will, if they're a reputable one, will always replace it. Now, modafinil is like the lowest level of uh, restriction. So it's not regarded as uh, particularly harmful or having, you know, addictive properties or, you know, very negative side effects. And uh, it's not like you need to taper off it. It has no street value. But uh, you can find, now, God forbid, how would one find a reputable pharmacy overseas? God forbid that anyone should do such a thing. God forbid that they do research online to try to find out, you know, which are the reputable, reliable ones. God forbid that they should rely on hundreds of, you know, other testimonials from supposedly satisfied customers who are breaking American law by doing this and ripping off our, our big pharma companies buying their their medication at like 5% of the price. I mean, it's God forbid that people should break American law so that they can afford to, to purchase the medication that they need. Right? Wouldn't it be better that people suffer? Wouldn't it be better if people go hungry or go homeless so that at least they can keep, keep rewarding big pharma for all the, the fantastic things that they've done for us. I mean, God, why won't they leave Big Pharma alone? Why do so many Americans want to buy pharmaceuticals illegally overseas for just 5% of the price that they'd have to pay in America? Why won't they stop ripping off Big Pharma? Why won't they leave Big Pharma alone or the criticism? All the shady illegal dealing where individuals have the chutzpah to do research online and find, God forbid, reputable pharmacies, God forbid, in India that provide, God forbid, the very product that they advertise, God forbid, and provide it in a timely and highly inexpensive fashion, God forbid, that these overseas pharmaceutical shops that they provide the very same thing you can buy in America for 25 times the price and if God forbid customs seizes your illegal shipment then God forbid this Indian pharmaceutical company just sends you a replacement no worries God forbid that Americans should do this to our blessed pharmaceutical companies who have suffered so much for us who have invested in all this great technology and then how do we repay them we we rip them off we just like put a dagger in their heart by God forbid purchasing pharmaceuticals 
overseas. God forbid that, that my friend should pay a dollar fifty for his modafinil when he has the opportunity of paying eighteen dollars a pill for the exact same modafinil. God forbid that Americans should be so careless. I mean, God forbid that people use sites like Library Genesis, where God forbid they can download, you know, almost any book that, that's uh, been published. Like, God forbid that people don't keep subsidizing our left-wing publishing empires. Like, God forbid. Think about all the great left-wing publishing houses, you know, controlled by angry, you know, anti-white male feminists on the left. Like, God forbid that we should stop subsidizing these major publishing houses that hate us, that uh, want to subjugate and destroy and humiliate us. God forbid that we should stop subsidizing them. And God forbid, you know, we go to a website like God forbid, like Library Genesis, or God forbid, you know, some other sharing site, or God forbid we use SciHub. You know, so many scholars and amateur scholars and just curious minds, God forbid, this makes me so, so sad. They go to a place like SciHub, S-C-I-H-U-B, some, some, you know, Russian site, all right? So, you know, Russian, bad, really, really bad. And they can go there and they can just download and read for free all sorts of academic papers that normally you'd have to pay $25, $55, $155 for. And people with curious minds are just going there, you know, downloading for free academic papers and, like, how do you think the Journal of Gerontology feels about that? How do you think, you know, our left-wing academic publishers feel about that? Like, if people, God forbid, keep using sharing sites instead of sending money to, you know, left-wing media organizations, God forbid, if, if people stop sending money to left-wing academic institutions, like, God forbid, if we stop subsidizing our elites who hate us god forbid that would be so terrible i ugh, just makes me so sad to think that so many americans are using sharing sites to get tv shows and movies because they don't want to subsidize the left-wing entertainment companies that hate them and loathe them and despise them and portray them in all sorts of nefarious ways people are using library genesis to get the books they want without subsidizing our left-wing publishers People are using sharing sites like, you know, the Pirate Bay and so many others. God forbid we should be sending money to record companies who, who brought us so many amazing rap artists. Like record companies pushing degeneracy and, you know, anti-traditional values and sexual degradation. Like, God forbid we should stop subsidizing the, the record companies, the movie companies, the TV companies the media enterprises, the publishers who hate us and loathe us and denigrate us and promote a left-wing agenda. God forbid that we should stop subsidizing them. And I think someone may have misinterpreted my earlier comment about, you know, Asian massage and Tenem Sands. My, my point was to, to say how sad this is. Like Los Angeles is populated with hundreds of, of whorehouses and hundreds of marijuana shops. Like there are hundreds of like massage parlors you know, essentially whorehouses that are next to synagogues that are, you know, out there on Main Street where kids are walking by and, you know, men are going in and using these women are often in the country illegally. So we, we have, you know, hundreds of these illegal brothels, you know, populating up and down Los Angeles, Beverly Hills, our main thoroughfares next to synagogues. Now even Tenem Sands has one. And 
God forbid that we should stop subsidizing all these, you know, nefarious enterprises who hate us and want to crap on, you know, everything that we hold sacred. God forbid. God forbid. Okay. Dopamine Nation, Dr. Anna Lemke. Anna Lemke. All right. Great to have you here. Thanks, Anna. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here. I have a lot of questions for you. I, I and many listeners of this podcast are obsessed with dopamine. And what is dopamine? How does it work? We all hear that dopamine is this molecule associated with pleasure. I think the uh, the term dopamine hits, like I'm getting a dopamine hit from this, from Instagram or from likes or from praise or from whatever, is now um, commonly heard. What is dopamine? And what are maybe some things about dopamine that most people don't know and probably that I don't know either? So dopamine is a neurotransmitter and neurotransmitters are those molecules that bridge the gap between two neurons. So they essentially allow one neuron, the presynaptic neuron, to communicate I with the postsynaptic neuron. I need feeling here. Um, dopamine is intimately... Okay, I need feeling, all right? I, I need the science. Give me empathy. I'm suffering. Uh, associated with the experience of reward, but also with movement, which I think is really interesting because movement and reward are linked, right? If you think about, you know, um, early humans, you had to move in order to go seek out the water or the, the meat or whatever it was. Um, and even in the most primitive organisms, dopamine is released when food is sensed in the environment. For example, C. elegans, a very um, primitive worm. So um, dopamine is this really um, powerful, important molecule in the brain that helps us um, experience pleasure. It's not the only neurotransmitter involved in pleasure, but it's a really, really important one. And if, if you want to think about something that most people don't know about dopamine, which, which I think is really interesting, is that we, we are always releasing dopamine at a kind of tonic baseline rate. And it's really the deviation from that baseline rather than like hits of dopamine in a vacuum that make a difference. So when we experience pleasure, our dopamine release goes above baseline. And likewise, dopamine can go below that tonic baseline. And and then we experience a kind of pain. Interesting. So is it fair to say that one's baseline levels of dopamine, how frequently we are releasing dopamine in the absence of some, uh, I don't know, drug or food or experience, just sitting, being, uh, is that associated with how happy somebody is, a kind of baseline of happiness or level of depression? There is evidence that shows that people who are depressed may indeed have lower tonic levels of dopamine. So that's a really reasonable thought. And there's some evidence to suggest that that may be true. The other thing that we know, and this is you know, a really kind of what, what the book is about, is that if we um, expose ourselves chronically to substances or behaviors that repeatedly release large amounts of dopamine in our brain's reward pathway, that we can change our tonic baseline and actually lower it over time as our brain tries to compensate for all of that dopamine, which is... Now, it's funny. One of the recommendations is to take a dopamine fast once a week, don't listen to music, don't go online, don't watch TV, right? Don't, don't engage in any of these easy dopamine hits that uh, if you want to read a book, right, don't read it on a Kindle, like pick up a hardcover book. Essentially, like, these professors were prescribing keep Shabbos, you know, keep the Sabbath in the traditional Jewish fashion, detach from the use of technology, like take a dopamine fast once a week, you'll be much happier. They're prescribing Shabbos for everyone. Baruch Hashem. More really than we were designed to to experience. Interesting. And is it, would, is it um, the case that our baseline levels of dopamine are set by our genetics, by our heredity? Well, I think, you know, if you think about sort of, you know, the early stages of development in infancy, certainly that is true. You're kind of, you know, born with probably whatever is your baseline level. But obviously your experiences can have a huge impact on where your your dopamine level ultimately settles out. So um, if somebody's disposition is one of um, constant excitement and anticipation or easily excited, uh, you, these are, I think about the kind of people where you say, hey, do you want to check out this new place for tacos? And like, yeah, that'd be great. And other people are. Yeah. 
that's kind of my disposition. I'm always excited. I'm always enthused about something. And a lot of people like me, they're always enthused about something. And it's just wearing on normies. Like normal people, they just they just feel so worn down. I mean, people I went to high school with, it's like, ah, oh, no one knew what to do with 40 and, and his brain. And like, it's just constantly going on this jag and that jag. Um, a little more cynical, harder to budge, <laughs> like my bulldog Costello. Um, very, very stable, low levels of dopamine with big inflections in his case. Um, is that? Do you think that's a set in terms of um, our parents and obviously nature and nurture interact? But is that is dopamine at the core of our temperament? I don't really think we know the answer to that, but I will say that people are definitely born with different temperaments, and those temperaments do affect their ability to experience joy. Um, and, and you know, we've known that for a long time, and we describe that in many different ways. One of the ways that we describe that in the modern era is to use psychiatric nomenclature, like this person has a dysthymic temperament, or you know, this person has chronic major depressive disorder. Um, in terms of looking specifically at who's vulnerable to addiction, um, that's an interesting sort of mixed bag because when you look at uh, the research on risk factors for addiction, so what kind of temperament uh, of a person makes them more vulnerable to addiction, you see... Um, okay, for me, biggest risk factor for me falling into addiction is disconnection, right? Or the other way, I am least vulnerable to addiction when I've been like semi-unofficially adopted. You know, I'm part of something when I'm around healthy people, you know, like when I'm around my brother, when I'm in Tedham Sands, it's like such a healthy community. Uh, when I feel connected to other people, when I feel at home in my synagogue, when I feel connected to my rabbi, when I have like useful role to play for an employer, useful role to play for the community, some you know volunteer position where I feel connected to my friends, then my need for bizarre attention-seeking behavior is considerably reduced. My my need for you know, more more levels of, of pleasure and excitement and thrill-seeking. You know, living on the edge, that all kind of gets calmed down. So just being in Tenham Sands, as I'm sure you can you can see, I just came back from swimming and doing push-ups and running on the beach and so cool, calm, collected. All right, so in certain environments with certain people, you know, when I feel connected to others, that just kind of calms my need for bizarre acting out and thrill-seeking and you know, just going to the edge. Some interesting findings. First, you see that people who are more impulsive are more vulnerable to addiction. So what is impulsivity? That means having difficulty um, putting space between the thought or desire to do something and actually doing it. And people who have difficulty putting a space there, who, are, who have a thought to do something and just do it impulsively. Yeah, that's me. I, I, came, I decided to come to Australia in 20 minutes. Right? It took me 20 minutes for a couple of things to fall into place and decided to come to Australia for three months very impulsive like when i want to do something when i want to eat when i want to read a book like i've got to have it now i'm uh i'm this impulsive creature she is describing are people who are more vulnerable to addiction interesting could i uh, in terms of impulsivity is this something that relates literally to um the startle reflex like i for instance as a uh, lab director i'm familiar with walking around my lab and um when i decide deciding i'm going to talk to my people of course when they knock on my door it's always like wait why am i being bothered so, yeah, I've traditionally had a really big startle reflex. So physiologically, the startle reflex shows itself by the head juts forward and the shoulders ride, ride up and the head tilts back, Ugh, compressing the, the neck, compressing the spine, the shoulders go up. You, you're just kind of defending yourself. And I would kind of walk around in about 10 or 20% of startle reflex habitually. A lot of people do. Some people walk around in like 50% of startle reflex or 30%. It's just... You know, wrecking their musculature, wrecking their alignment, wrecking their posture, 
And you know, people like this, they're not going to be very pleasant to be around. Right? How pleasant you're going to be is going to have a lot to do with how much at ease you feel in your body. And if your body is all distorted by unnecessary tension and compression patterns, if you're in this you know, weird forward head posture and the shoulders riding up and the head tipping back, compressing the neck, you know, putting unnecessary strain on, on your back, right? you're not going to be a very pleasant person to be with. So through learning the Alexander technique, learning to let go of unnecessary compression in my face and in my back and in my neck, learning to have a gentle desire for my head to release forward and up, leading my whole torso into length and width. I've been able to somewhat modulate and moderate my, my startle response. So I'm a lot calmer. I think I'm, I think I'm easier to be around these days. I mean, a lot of people who've hosted me for Shama's Meals have said that, uh, yeah, since the Alexander Technique, I've been a lot easier. Right now, even though I love to talk <laughs> to them, but I walk around my lab from time to time and some people I notice I'll say, um, do you have a moment? And they'll totally turn around and say, yeah, or no, in mm -hmm. some cases. Um, and other people will jump the moment I say their name. Mm -hmm. They actually have a, and the chat says, even the mighty Alexander technique is no match for the smartphone or head posture. Well, I am looking at my very low level Australian Oppo phone smartphone right now. And uh, I'm, not, I'm not losing my alignment. I'm not losing my upward sense of direction. My head is still releasing forward and up. So one thing to do with the smartphone is to keep it kind of level with your eyes so you're not collapsing down. So we tend to collapse down and into whatever we're paying attention to. Our computer, we tend to collapse down and in on our computer, on the TV, someone we're talking to. So inhibit habitual responses, think up, think the head releasing forward and up, thinking about the width across my chest, across my back, across my shoulders. Okay, so bring the, bring the smartphone up high level, so I'm not going to tempt, be as tempted to collapse down into it. And you can you can nod your head up and down from your ears, right? There's, there's a joint here in your head. So I can look down from here. I can look up from here instead of coming down or tipping my head back. So I can turn my head from my ear up and down without collapsing and unnecessarily compressing. A, a kind of a heightened um, startle reflex. Right. Is that related to impulsivity or is what you're referring to um, an attempt to uh, withhold behavior that's very deliberate under very deliberate conditions? Yeah. So I don't think that that startle reflex is, is necessarily related to impulsivity. That, that can be related to anxiety. So people who are high anxiety people will tend to have more of a startle reflex. Impulsivity is a little bit different. And by the way, impulsivity is not always bad, right? Um, impulsivity is, is that thing where there's not a lot of self-editing or worrying about future consequences. You know? So... Yeah, chiropractors, generally speaking, from my opinion, are worthless at best and, and dangerous at worst. Like, there have just been hundreds of people who've had strokes when the chiropractors cracked their neck and it's caused a stroke. And the chiropractors used to work on my mother and they just caused her agony, just caused her so much tremendous unnecessary pain. They, they really did a number on my mother. And, and the benefits of chiropractic usually disappear within a few hours. So essentially one big dangerous scam that is milking people and our medical system for billions and billions and billions of dollars. Like it's habitually, habitually prescribed for people after a car accident and, you know, at best, it, you know, it does nothing. At best.
you know, you have the idea to do something and you do it. And of course, we can imagine many scenarios where that's absolutely wonderful. Um, you know, there can be sort of, uh, let's say, intimate um, interactions between people where you wouldn't really want to be super inhibited about it, right? You would want to be disinhibited and, and impulsive. Um, there, I can also like imagine like sort of um, fight or flight scenarios, like battle scenarios, right? Where where it would really be good to be impulsive and just go, rah, you know. Just where go, hesitation can cost right. you Right, yes, yeah. that's right, that's yeah. right. But, you know, and I think this brings up a really interesting thing that I've come to believe after 25 years. Yeah, so we all have these habitual reactions such as fight, flight, you know, freeze, and we have habitual you know, tendencies towards, you know, we want love, we want sex, we want relationships, we want financial safety, physical safety, we want status. We get into trouble when these basic instincts get out of whack. So that's when I've got into trouble. One, one basic instinct, such as financial safety, I've turned into a miser, right? Or the basic instinct of looking for love and you know, crash my reputation, I, I damage other people, look for love in the wrong places. So when I've gotten into trouble, it's when these basic instincts just simply escape their, their proper place years of practicing psychiatry is that what we now conceptualize in our current ecosystem as mental illness are actually traits that in another ecosystem might be very advantageous. They're just not advantageous right now. Yeah, that, that's huge. So our fear of public speaking, right? We have a disproportionate fear of public speaking because for millions and millions of years, we lived in small tribes our entire life. And so if you're going to be around 50, 60 people your entire life, Getting up to speak publicly, there are just so many dangers to that that uh, the payoff just isn't there. So this is evolutionary mismatch, also our tendency to double down, you know, food, sugar, salty food, whatever we've got it. Used to be for millions of years, if we got access to such such food, yeah, you, you eat it down immediately. That was the most evolutionarily adaptive thing to do. And and now normal human sadness, where you get the opportunity to consider introspect about what you've been doing and realize that certain things are not working that you say cause unnecessary harm to other people you can start to think about new ways of acting and speaking and then you can play out the scenarios for these new ways of acting and speaking so all this time you're very well likely to look depressed to people but this is normal human sadness and it's adaptive frequently to go through these periods of normal human sadness to reconsider your ways, start thinking about new ways of doing things, and this gets medicalized. So all sorts of normal human reactions are now medicalized so that you know, doctors can, can prescribe medication and whole industry can make money. Because of the world that we live in. And, and I think, you know, impulsivity is potentially one of those, right? Because we live in this world that's sort of like you have to um, constantly be thinking sort of rationally about the consequences of X, Y, or Z. And it's such a sensory rich environment, right? That we're being bombarded with all these opportunities, these sensory opportunities, and we have to constantly check ourselves. And so, so, so impulsivity is something that right now um, can be a difficult trait, but isn't in and of itself a bad thing. I see. Yeah. yeah and it's, I, I begin to realize it's a fine line between spontaneity and impulsivity. Yeah. Uh, what is pleasure and how does it work at the biological level? And, um, if, if it feels right at the psychological level, I think we, and um, if you don't mind uh, painting a picture of sort of the, the range of things that you have observed in your clinic or in life that people can become addicted to. But just to start off really simply, what is this thing that we call pleasure? Okay. To be continued, it's about time for a family dinner. Talk to you guys later. Bye-bye.